Okay, good morning. We're, we're going to leave Acts for today and go back to the Gospel of John. And I'll just give a moment for our sound to get right. Sounds good? Yep, perfect. Okay, I want to pick up on a theme which um, I've mentioned a few times as I've been looking at John, but not really developed. And that is something of the nature of the being of God that is revealed to us in the Gospel of John. So if you were with us last time I spoke, you might recall that we looked at various Old Testament references to the Word of God and saw how these pointed forward prophetically to Jesus, the Word made flesh. And I said this was a stumbling block for the Jews because this, for them, this was a blasphemous claim. Is it possible to take it perhaps down a little bit? Could perhaps take the volume down a little bit? I'll just shout a bit louder. Thank you. I said uh, this was a stumbling block for the Jews because for them this was a blasphemous claim. How could a man claim to be God? There was only one God. This was one of the foundations of their faith. In Deuteronomy 6 we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And verse 5 of that passage is the prayer known as the Shema, perhaps the most important prayer in Judaism, a prayer that is prayed several times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. A clear statement of the oneness of God, an affirmation of the mono, uh, mono, monothe- monotheistic essence of Judaism. So when John opens his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Good Jews would have been on guard. Who is this that was both with God and was God? And on one level, they were right to react like this, because these opening words of John weren't carelessly written. They were very deliberate, and they were the start of a comprehensive challenge to the traditional view of God. So we start the gospel with that declaration that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was with God in the beginning. Then in verse 14 we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. Then right at the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, we see Thomas's confession when he saw Jesus after the resurrection. My Lord and my God. And here Thomas uses the same form of words as was found in the Shema. He's acknowledging that Jesus is none other than the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Thomas came to this point after three years of seeing Jesus and hearing him speak and looking finally on the resurrected Christ. And John wants to bring us, the readers, to that same place to also make the confession that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. So in his gospel, John records um, how Jesus reveals more of the nature of God, how he showed that the oneness of God that had been so strongly emphasized up to that point was actually more wonderful and more mysterious than they had ever imagined. Now, John takes care to show that this isn't a new God. This is still the one God of the Old Testament. The plurality within the Godhead that Jesus reveals was already hinted at in the Old Testament in the Jewish scriptures, but is now brought into sharper focus by Jesus. 
I've mentioned already that um, in the past that the Old Testament references to the Word of God in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Similarly, if you look back through the Old Testament, you'll see references to the, the Spirit of God um, or the breath of God. And now we find that this is actually a personal being who is also God. Jesus describes himself as the Son of God and describes God as his Father. So now we have three personal beings that are all described as God. And this was powerful stuff, and it proved too much for many of the Jews to handle, but it was a glorious revelation for those like Thomas who finally grasped. And it's a truth which is still deeply divisive, but it remains a mine of treasure for those who will take Jesus at his word. And we're not going to do much mining today, but I just want to take a little glimpse into the mine shaft, just so you get a bit of an idea of what there is there to be found. We're going to start by looking at some of the words of Jesus as recorded by John in chapter 14. Now these are some of the last words that Jesus spoke to the disciples before he died. Spoken in the upper room after the last meal, after Judas Iscariot had left to betray him, before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So I think you can reasonably suppose this is a very special and intimate time. Jesus knows that these are his last moments before he goes to his death. Judas has gone, so now he's just alone with his true disciples. And here Jesus is both instructing and comforting them, but he's also drawing them in closer than he's ever done before. He's telling them what is most deeply on his heart. We're just going to look at a short extract this morning of what he said. And so this is John chapter 14, and I'm reading from verses 15 through to 26. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot know or receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So at this very precious and intimate time, when Jesus is sharing the things most deeply on his heart with his most loved disciples, what is it that he is talking about? Well, a quick word count shows that he mentions love eight times. He mentions his father six times, the Holy Spirit five times, the disciples 13 times, and words indicating relationship about 15 times. 
So in these last moments before Jesus is taken to be crucified, he's talking about love and relationship. Love and relationship between himself, his Father, and the Holy Spirit. And the love and relationship of these three members of the Trinity with those disciples, both the disciples there and those that would follow. And that includes us. All of those who love Jesus and obey his commands are included into this web of loving relationship. Jesus knew that he was just about to suffer, inconceivable suffering. But at this time, this was what he wanted us to know, that we could be included into the love of God and included in sharing that love. And the more we're able to grasp what it was that Jesus was telling us about the nature of God, the more we'll find ourselves able to enter into this. And that's what I want to try and help us to do this morning. As we start to consider the nature of God as it's revealed in these verses, the first thing that becomes clear is that this isn't going to be an easy exercise. You see, we see Jesus talking here about three distinct divine persons. Jesus has already been identified as God. And here he says that he's going to ask his Father, and the Father will send another helper, the Holy Spirit. So we have three persons all identified as God, but only one God. How can this be? Well, the first thing I think that I should say is that we do well to notice that the Bible never tries to explain the how of this works. It just tells us this is how it is. And I know some of us struggle with this because we like to understand how things work. But really, I don't think we should. Because at one level, our capacity to understand is limited by our experience of the world around us. Should we be surprised that God, who created this world can't adequately be described in terms of things that we find within it. One problem with trying, which of course plenty of people have done, is that the illustrations and parallels that are used are invariably misleading if they're taken anything other than their most superficial level. And I want to start this morning by looking at some of the errors that people have got when they've tried to make sense of the oneness and threeness of God. The one idea is to say that God is one person, But sometimes he plays the role of the Father, sometimes of the Son, and sometimes of the Holy Spirit. So we have one God, and at different times, three different expressions of that one God. Now you might have heard the illustration that says that God is like water that can exist as ice, steam, and water. Well, that's what this view is saying, and it's easy to understand. But just because it's easy doesn't mean it's right. And it's very plain from this passage and from many others that we can't take that easy way out. All three persons here are described as interacting together in a way that would be completely meaningless if it was one person playing three roles. It's nonsensical. I mean, you can imagine, I'm the Father, I'm Jesus. I'm saying, Father, um, I want to ask you something. I'm the Father saying, yes, son, what is it? It just doesn't work, and it's wrong. Another suggestion is God is like a three-leaf clover. One leaf, but three lobes, or one cake but divided into three pieces. So again, we maintain the oneness of God, but this time at the expense of making each of the divine persons less than fully God. Each is just one third of God. And this isn't what the Bible teaches. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God, all fully embody all the attributes of God in their totality. So this illustration doesn't work either. Another possibility is to deny the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, to say they're not God. And that, of course, is a route taken by the other monotheistic religions and all the Christian sects. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Yet another possibility is to abandon the oneness of God and have three equal but individual gods. 
But apart from the fact that's not what the Bible tells us, it also leads to various other difficulties, and we'll touch on one of those later. So we have one God, not three gods. But that one God doesn't play three different roles. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, but they are all fully God. But that raises another problem. If each person of the Godhead is fully God, if each fully embodies all the attributes of God, we seem to be describing three identical beings. And if they're identical, then they're indistinguishable. And if they're indistinguishable, well, that causes all sorts of problems. We know that isn't the case, so what does distinguish them from one another? And the answer is that they are distinguished in terms of their relationship with each other. Jesus gives us some insight into that here. He speaks to his Father, so Jesus must be the Son. And whilst we have to be careful not to take these human terms too far, these are the terms that Jesus used. So what can we say? We can say the Son comes from the Father. The Father doesn't come from the Son. The Father is a Father because he has a Son. And there was never a time when he didn't have a Son. He was always a Father. So like a spring in a mountainside, it's only a spring because it's pouring out water. If there's no water, there's no spring. So it is the nature of the spring to always be giving out water. So it is with God the Father. He's always giving out the Son. And the Holy Spirit is likewise sent by the Father, but he's sent in the name of the Son. Elsewhere we read the Holy Spirit comes from the Father. Other times he's described as the Spirit of Jesus. And I don't want us to get too bogged down in the details of how the mechanics of this work, how this works, because the Bible doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us quite clearly is that each person of the Trinity is unique. And the principal way in which that uniqueness has been revealed to us is in terms of relationship. The Father gives rise to the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son proceeds from the Father and gives rise to the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. So we have three unique persons differentiated in terms of their relationship with each other, but one God. Now, at this stage, you may well be forgiven for thinking this all sounds rather complicated, and you might be tempted to wonder, does it really matter? And you wouldn't be the first. Over the years, many people have answered, no, it doesn't really matter. We can understand God perfectly well and live our Christian lives perfectly well without it. But they're wrong. Does it really matter? Most emphatically, yes. Because our understanding of the nature of God will profoundly affect the way that we engage with him, or indeed if we choose to engage with him at all. And more than that, our lives and our characters are shaped by the nature of that which we worship. So a right understanding of God is vital. And I maintain that it's only in the Trinitarian God that we find a basis for all that is good and lovely. And that's the case I want to try and persuade you of this morning. To do that, I want to take us back through several key points in the timeline of history. So we start with John in the beginning. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The next verse tells us that through the Word, everything was made. So in the beginning, before anything else was made, before creation, before anything else existed, we have the Word with God. In the beginning was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what's revealed to us in the Bible. But let's imagine for a moment that wasn't the case. That instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just have a solitary being called God. And I think it's worth saying that when we um, speak about God, it's this solitary God 
that most people um, think of. You know, even the God the atheists don't believe in isn't Trinitarian. Now, for some people, um, the, God might be an indulgent, easygoing grandfather type of figure. For others, he's a tyrant. For the philosophers, he's the most powerful, intelligent being you can imagine, the uncaused cause of everything that exists. But what's common to all of these views is the fact that God is a solitary figure. And if such a God existed, what would he be like? Well, we can grant a number of the philosopher's points. This God would be eternal, immensely powerful, intelligent, an extraordinary mathematician, engineer, and artist. Awesome, mighty. But if these characteristics fully defined God then he would be a terrifying God, a God to be feared, because this God has total power, but no love, no empathy, no goodness, and no kindness. This God would be worse than the devil himself, and yet this is the God that many people believe in exists, but it isn't the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible was never a solitary being. Even before the creation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in community together. John 17, 24 records Jesus praying to his Father, saying, You loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were loving each other. And remember, we aren't talking about three different gods here. So this love is internal. internal. It's part of the fundamental being of God. From all eternity, this was a God of love. In one of his letters, John writes that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Love isn't primarily what God does. It's what he is. It's what defines him. So while all the philosopher's points are true, they are secondary. The way the Bible reveals God to us is as an eternally loving father, a beloved son and a Holy Spirit who delights to join father and son together in joyful union. Clearly, this is a very different kind of God. And it's a difference that impacts on every single aspect of existence. If our conception of God has any trace of that almighty but solitary God, then every aspect of existence will be uncertain, dark, and frightening. But in the light of a Trinitarian God whose essence is love, then everything is bright, glorious, and exciting. Moving along in our timeline, we come next to creation. So let's think briefly why our almighty but solitary God might create. The one thing we can be sure of is um, that it must be for some selfish reason. Because to be selfish means to be chiefly concerned with one's own pleasure. And since there was no one else, all of this God's actions must, by definition, be selfish. So the only reason that we and the universe exist is to satisfy some need or desire of the God. And if he finds pleasure in making us suffer, then we'll suffer. If he takes pleasure in making rules for us to follow that we can't keep so he can then have an excuse to punish us, that's what he'll do. If we cause him pleasure, he might keep us, but any time he tires off, he can just wipe us away. We're his playthings and nothing more. If this is God, we should rightfully fear him. If we were made by such a God, then the best thing we can do is keep our heads down, try and keep our distance. These are rational responses to this kind of God. And this is the kind of God that many people believe in. But it isn't the God of the Bible. 
The Bible teaches we were made by a Trinitarian God. Hebrews 1.2 tells us that the Father made the universe through the Son. You might recall Psalm 33.6, which tells us the heavens were made by the Word of God. That is the Son. But the second half of the verse tells us that the starry hosts were made by the breath of his mouth, a reference to the Holy Spirit. If we look back to Genesis 1, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were together in creation. The Father creating with the Son and Holy Spirit acting as his agents. But for the moment, more important than who did what and why, I want to see that the creation is a natural act for this kind of God. When this God created, it wasn't for any selfish reason. It wasn't to compensate for any inadequacy or need of his own. For eternity, this God had existed in perfect community. They had no need for anything. But for all eternity, the Father had been the source of bringing forth the Son. For all eternity, he was the source of light, of life and love. His very nature is to share and to give, to love and to create. In Colossians 1.6, we read of Christ that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, for him, for Christ. So God the Father created everything as a gift for his Son. But more than that, we read in Romans 8.17 that if we are God's children, We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In other words, it was made for us too. In the creation, we simply see the overflow of the bounteous love of a creator God who simply couldn't keep all that was good to himself. We see a God that can't help but to share and give it. What a complete contrast to the selfish, demanding, solitary God. The God of the Bible is a God who wants to draw us to himself so that he can share all that is good and lovely. This isn't a God to be feared or hidden from, but a God to be delighted in, a God that we can draw near to and love. And the more we dwell in that love, the more we'll find that we are able to, to, that we want to give it out and to share it like he does. So we see an eternal God whose essence is love create a world out of the overflow of his goodness so that others can share in his delight. And then what happens? Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve get tempted and eat the forbidden fruit. But again, the way that we view this story and its consequences will be completely different depending on the way that we view God. And the difference is important. Say that you believe in an almighty creator God, but this is the solitary God of the philosophers. And this God has created people and given the command that they're not to eat of a certain tree. But they do. And you read that God commanded them to leave the garden, and that as a consequence of their action, they and all mankind are doomed to die and spend eternity in hell unless they repent. How do you interpret this in the light of your understanding about God? Well, I suggest that first you're going to see the consequences as being extreme, completely out of proportion to the small misdemeanor. Both the original command and the punishment seem arbitrary and unreasonable. God sounds vengeful and petty a God to be despised and feared. If you worship this God at all, it will be out of a desire to escape, to appease, um, uh, appease him if possible, to try and escape punishment. 
Religion, if you practice it at all, will be about keeping the rules and hoping that you do enough to weigh the scales in your favour. This is a God you keep as far away from as possible. The Christian command to love God seems frankly unreasonable, if not downright ridiculous. But doesn't this sound like the sort of God that you've heard people describe? But it's not the God of the Bible. How might we interpret this story if we believe in a Trinitarian God? A God who is eternally loving, giving and sharing. We read that man was made in God's image. Made to be loved by God and to respond in love to him. Made to be loved and love their fellow human beings. What were Adam and Eve doing before they ate the fruit? Well, they were walking and talking with God in the garden. The sharing of love and relationship was at the heart of everything. And this cast the disobedience of Adam and Eve in a very different light. You see, the act of eating the fruit is actually just the surface outworking of something much deeper. And the consequence, rather than being just the arbitrary action of a vengeful God, turns out to be both just and inevitable. And how is this so? Before they sinned, the hearts of an Adam and Eve were projected outwards to their heavenly Father, the source of love and life, the source of all their physical and spiritual needs. It was an open relationship of unfettered love. But then came Satan, and he suggested to Adam and Eve that God was holding something back, that their lives could be improved, that they could be like God and not have to depend on him for everything. And sin came when they listened to him and allowed their hearts to be turned inwards to themselves to think about what they wanted without reference to God. In that moment, they became selfish. In that moment, they broke relationship with God. The eating of the fruit was an outward expression of this change of heart. Now, there's no trace of selfishness in God. All, each member of the Godhead loves all of the others with a pure and unbounded love. There's no possible place within this, within this community for selfish beings. When man turned his heart inwards, he could no longer be part of God's community. So man's alienation from God isn't the punitive punishment of a vengeful God for the petty crime of eating an apple. It was the inevitable consequence of man bending his love inwards to himself. It's about love betrayed and relationship broken. And the more we understand God as our loving Father, the more we will understand sin not as a broken rule, but as a breaking of relationship, and the less we will be inclined to sin. A quick personal story might help illustrate. When I was young, um, my parents were quite strict. And I know that some of you will find that hard to believe. To avoid punishment, I tried with only limited success to avoid breaking the rules. But I remember quite clearly when I was 11 years old, a specific incident which caused me to realise that, um, perhaps for the first time, that my disobedience really hurt my parents. I saw the pain that it caused. And that transformed my attitude to disobedience. I would like to say that I lived a life of virtuous perfection from that day on. I didn't, in case you're wondering. But the desire for good relationship proved to be a much better motivator than a desire to avoid punishment. So then the way we view God completely changes the way that we view sin and punishment. But the nature of God also completely changes the way that he will respond to sin. And that's what we'll look at now. 
See, before man sinned, his relationship with God mirrored that of the Trinity. It was outward-looking. It was dependent. It sought the good of the other. It was loving. It was relational. When man sinned, he turned that love inwards to himself. The lie he chose to believe and act on was that he could exist independently of God and that that would be a better place to be. So he severed his relationship with God in exchange for a relationship with himself. And since God is the source of life, by separating himself, man died. The root of our problem is relationship, broken relationship, love turned inwards. So how does God respond? Well, I'm not going to give much time to the solitary God's response because there's not much to say. This is a God with no intrinsic love or goodness, a God that will just do whatever suits him. So no good news for us there. But there's another view of God which surfaces sometimes in this discussion. And it's almost the opposite of the solitary God. In this view, Father, Son and Holy Spirit become almost three separate gods. And in this view, the Father God sends the Son God to suffer and die. And the Son God, because he's obedient, he goes. And the Father God sits back and watches his Son be tortured and killed so that he, the Father, can feel that justice has been done. And we were asked, what sort of God would demand that of his son? If this is God the Father, why would we want to be adopted into his family? But of course, this isn't the God of the Bible either. So how does the God of the Bible respond to man's sin? Well, the first thing we have to understand is that because the Trinitarian God is intrinsically loving, everything he does must be perfectly good. And because he is good, he must also be just. And some people struggle with that, but it's really quite easy to see. Imagine we read in the news that somewhere a man has brutally massacred hundreds of people. We would be horrified, and we'd want to see that man punished. Now suppose the perpetrator is a good friend of the president of that country, and the president says he's decided to let that man go free. What would you think? Would you think, wow, what a great man? Would you call your family to pack their bags, say, we're going to go and live in that country? Of course not. Rather, you would pity the people that are forced to live in a country with so corrupt and wicked a president. Goodness demands justice. So God couldn't simply overlook man's sin. On the other hand, there was no punishment that could be given to man that would adequately fit the crime. Imagine that instead of forgiving the killer, in our example, the corrupt president sentenced him to a day in prison. Would justice have been done? Well, of course not. But man's sin against God was so great that even if man paid the greatest possible penalty, it would still be just like one day in jail. It would still fall impossibly short of that which justice requires. The only being with great enough to pay the penalty was God himself. But the one who needed to pay that penalty was man. The only way the two could come together would be if God himself became a man. Who but a God with overflowing with boundless love would even consider such a plan? But the God of the Bible is just such a God. So we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. God the Father gave that which was most precious to him, his only son, 
and the Son, because of his love for the Father, and because his love for those that he had created, willingly came. The Word became flesh. And there on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. As a man, he suffered more terribly than we can imagine. But as God, he suffered immeasurably more. Jesus, the Son, who for all eternity had reveled in the most intimate and joyful relationship with um, God the Father, was cut off. His cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's perhaps one of the most terrible cries ever uttered. And God the Father, who had for all eternity loved his Son, the source of his delight, was forced to turn his face away. Man's sin was to selfishly turn his face away from God. The selfless response of the Father was to turn his face away from his precious son. Man's penalty was complete separation from God. The response of the eternally loving son was to experience complete separation from his father. Man's sin resulted in broken relationship. The sacrifice of the eternally giving God made way for relationship to be restored. Only a Trinitarian God could do this. Only a Trinitarian God would do this. The Trinitarian God is one for which for all eternity has existed in perfect and joyous community. Only this kind of God could be described as intrinsically loving. The Trinitarian God is one that has for all eternity been creating, giving and sharing Only this kind of God would think to create other beings to share that love with. The Trinitarian God is one in which three distinct persons exist in such intimate unity that Jesus could say that he was in the Father and the Father was in him, that he and the Father were one. And yet this God invites us to share in this closeness of union. This is the God that says, we will come to you and make our home with you. We are called right into that most inner of inner circles. The Trinitarian God is so overflowing with love that he loved us even while we were still his enemies, so selfless that he gave himself to win us back. And this God calls us to imitate him, to generously share his love and his goodness. The Trinitarian God is the source of all that is good and lovely, the wellspring of light and life. This is a God that we can trust. This is a God that we can turn to, a God we can love and adore and worship. And this God, this is the God of the Bible.